morning. We'd like to welcome you here on this snowy morning to the Houghton Wesleyan Church. Please stand and join us as we worship our God together through song.
and gracious and faithful. We've come today to worship you with all of our hearts and to declare that we are here because of you. And we pray that you will speak deeply into our hearts and our souls today, that our worship would not only bring glory to you, but would bring about transformation in us. Thank you for being present with us in our worship today. And we give this time to you and pray this through Christ. Amen. I invite you to share a word of greeting with others who are here in worship today before you're seated. great to see you as uh, we gather for worship today. There's just a few things I want to highlight in the life of the church. Uh, next Sunday, regular worship schedule, services at 8, 20, 9, 40, and 
11. Uh, also, uh, you'll notice that we are going to be due having baptism again on Easter morning, which is the last Sunday of March. If you're interested in that, you can uh, let me know if you haven't already, and uh, we'll be planning a class in the coming weeks uh, to prepare for that. Also, uh, there was an announcement left out of the bulletin about Wednesday evening activities. There will not be any children's activities this week due to uh, the break at, at the college, so just be aware of, of that uh, change in the regular schedule. And also, you'll see a note of an invitation to college students about joining a disaster response team over Easter break. And if you are interested in that, you can contact Pastor Kevin and he, as he is leading that team. There's also a couple of inserts in your bulletin, one about a, a dinner coming up in a couple of weeks uh, that we've done for a few years, of uh, connection of college students with our senior citizens. And uh, we'd love to have you be a part of that. And also uh, uh, the showing of the movie uh, Camp. And you see some information about that as well that will come up on the 12th. We want to uh, take the opportunity now to um, collect our uh, tithes and offerings. And um, I think we might need a few ushers. I don't see any ushers standing back there. So anybody want to jump up? Because we are not going to let this go, I can tell you that. Some things you let slide. We are not letting this slide. So we'll, we'll get some ushers here to uh, take our offering and have the opportunity to give back to God from the ways in which he has uh, blessed and given to us.
There are a number of things that um, have taken place in the community of our of our church this week, and uh, we want to uh, we want to remember specifically some of these things. We want to pray for the family of Buddy Keith. Uh, Buddy died earlier this week. His service will be this afternoon at four o'clock here at the church. Uh, we want to pray for uh, Micah Christensen, who uh, was diagnosed with lymphoma this week, and we pray for him. His family's already starting going through treatments up at Strong, or at Children's Hospital, or Roswell, Buffalo. For Betty Lou Pollock, who was in an automobile accident and has gone through some surgery, and she is at Strong Hospital. Uh, we also want to pray for Bonnie Zemanski, uh, found uh, a tumor uh, in her, and so that's, they're still figuring out exactly what exactly that is, but I want to pray for her and her family, and also, we got word this morning, a Houghton College student is missing, and there is a search on for the student, and uh, so there's a lot of things that are uh, are going on in in the life of uh, of our church, and uh, we want to remember these concerns as well as others as uh, we pray together, and as we pray this morning, if you'd like to come and use the altar rail as uh, your place of prayer. I invite you to come and to join me. Father, as we come to this moment of prayer today, our hearts are heavy and burdened for the pain and the difficulty and the struggles of people who are connected to us, important to us, people we love. And we pray for your divine grace and mercy upon each one who is wrestling with some of the great difficulties that come living in this fallen world. We pray, Father, for Buddy Keith's family. And we ask that you would pour out your divine grace upon them, wrap your arms of love around them and Throughout today, the service, in the days to come, may they know your comfort and your peace in the midst of their sorrow and their loss. We pray, Father, for those among us who are struggling with injury and disease and surgery and treatments and difficulties of various kinds that that have come to us. We pray for Betty Lou and Micah, for Bonnie, and for others that we care deeply for who are going through some very difficult times. 
We pray for your healing grace in their bodies and in their lives and for their families as well. And we just pray that you would, you would pour out your abundant blessing in each situation for each person. Father, we pray for a situation with a student that is missing. We don't really know many details, but you know. We pray that you will work miraculously. We pray that you will comfort family and friends that are worried and concerned. We ask, Father, for your mercy, for your divine intervention. We pray for your grace. Father, we pray for the other ways in which we feel the weight of life in this world upon us. Struggling with disappointment, unfulfilled dreams, uncertainty about the future, so much that causes us to feel worry and fear and doubt. Father, through your Holy Spirit, minister to each of our hearts and souls. Help us to know that despite all the things that are going on in our lives, despite everything that's happening in this community and the surrounding communities and our world, that you are faithful and you are good and merciful and we can trust you. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that at this time of year, we remember the extent to which you are willing to go to love us and to transform us even to the cross. So, Father, give us grace to trust you to lean on you, to sense your presence closer than we might have ever sensed it before. And we pray this through our Lord Jesus Christ. As we remember the prayer that he taught his disciples to pray, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Early in the morning, Jesus was taken from Caiaphas' house to the governor's palace. The Jewish authorities did not go inside the palace, for they wanted to keep themselves ritually clean in order to be able to eat the Passover meal. So Pilate went outside to them and asked, 
What do you accuse this man of? We would not have brought him to you if he had not committed a crime. Then you yourselves take him and try him according to your own law. We are not allowed to put anyone to death. This happened in order to make come true what Jesus had said when he indicated the kind of death he would die. Pilate went back into the palace and called Jesus. Are you the king of the Jews? Does this question come from you? Or have others told you about me? Do you think I'm a Jew? It was your own people and the chief priests who handed you over to me. What have you done? My kingdom does not belong to this world. If my kingdom belonged to this world, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish authorities. No. My kingdom does not belong here. Are you a king, then? You say that I am a king. I was born and came into the world for this one purpose. To speak about the truth. Whoever belongs to the truth listens to me. And what is truth? Then Pilate went back outside to the people and said to them, I cannot find any reason to condemn him, but... According to the custom you have, I always set free a prisoner for you during the Passover. Do you want me to set free for you? The king of the Jews? They answered him with a shout. Barabbas was abandoned.
Say 
Father, you are indeed worthy. Through Christ, you have overcome every enemy. And you are victorious. We pray, Father, that you will speak deeply into our souls as we continue in worship. And let your word penetrate our hearts. And we pray this through Christ Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Everyone wants to believe that we have the corner on the truth. We all like to think that what we believe, the path that that we take, the way in which we view the things that happen in our lives and in the world, that that we're right. It's the most natural thing in the world to, to want to believe that the way we see things is the right way. How we got to that conclusion, how we got to the idea of this is what we believe and this is what we think is truth and this is what we think is right can come to us through a variety of means. I've discovered for myself that often what I think is right and particularly about things that might be a bit more trivial is because that's how I was raised to think is right. I was was raised to believe that this is the right, this is the right sports team to follow, this is the right... Uh, political party to connect with, uh, this is the right uh, credit card to have, whatever your case may be. And we all like to believe that we've made the right choices. And there's something in us that wants to defend what is right as we see it, sometimes without a whole lot of logic. But we do it. It's a part of life. It's one of the things that we wrestle with. And this idea of of truth and and our perception of truth and and what we view as truth is at the center of this story that we have seen and and read today as Jesus draws nearer and nearer to the cross. Jesus has spent the night being interrogated by the high priest and, and the leading religious leaders But as we talked about last week, the the Sanhedrin, as powerful as they are, they don't have the ability to put anyone to death. And that's their goal, to put Jesus to death. So the only way they can do that is to convince the Romans to do it. And so they take Jesus early in the morning to Pilate, who is the Roman governor. And as, as you saw, they said, you know, this is man... This man is is worthy of death. And Pilate says, what's he done? And they don't answer him. They just say, why would we bring him to you if he wasn't worthy of death? They really have no case against him. They just want to see him executed. And so Pilate spends some time interviewing Jesus, talking with Jesus. And in the midst of that conversation about, are you a king? Are you king of the Jews? Jesus says, it's for this reason that I came to display the truth. He said, everyone who is interested in the truth and on the side of truth listens to me. And Pilate responds with the famous question, what is truth? 
Outside of that, of Pilate's palace, there is a group of people who have declared, we know exactly what the truth is. We have the truth completely defined. We have it in a box. We have nailed it. And it's about what we, everything that we think. And Jesus is saying to Pilate, I'm the truth. And Pilate watches people who say, we're all about the truth and we understand the truth. And watches their behavior and I'm sure is wondering what in the world's going on. Because when he walks back outside and he says to them, I can't find anything wrong with him. And he knows that they're not going to settle for that. He comes up with a plan. He says to them, every year you have this custom that one of the prisoners is released. And, and I'm, I can just see the wheels turning in Pilate's mind. If I'm going to release someone, I don't want to, I want to let Jesus go. I can tell he's a good man. There, there's nothing to condemn him. So I'm going to, so if I give them a prisoner like I might normally do, somebody who maybe is imprisoned unjustly, someone who is, is imprisoned for a minor offense, but has sort of gotten stuck in there, I could, that's the kind of people we would normally say, why don't we let this person go? But instead, I want to make sure that Jesus is the one who gets released, so I'm going to pick the worst person I can find. And in Barabbas, now you get different versions of this in some of the other Gospels. He suggests, how about Barabbas? In John's Gospel, the crowd begins to cry. It's probably somewhat of a combination, cry out about Barabbas. It's probably somewhat of a combination of that. But in the end, you have, this, you have these two distinct people that, can be, that the crowd can choose. You have Jesus, who is a healer, a teacher of the truth whose life exhibits grace and mercy and love and compassion. And on the other side, you have Barabbas, who is, in some translations, called a robber. I don't think that's a strong enough term. He's an insurrectionist. One of the gospel writers says he's a murderer. He is the kind of person that when you release him into society, he is going to cause problems. And more than likely, what Barabbas is going to end up doing is creating more of a riotous atmosphere in Jerusalem that's going to bring the hammer of the Roman Empire down on the people. And people are going to suffer for that. And so you have these two distinct options. And the religious leaders seem seem to, as you look at all the gospel stories, seem to initiate this conversation, this response of Barabbas. And you scratch your head and you think, how do you reconcile we are about truth and condemning an innocent man and and letting go into society a murderer and an insurrectionist and a man who stands for everything that is against the truth? And we ask ourselves, what in the world would make them want to choose Barabbas over Jesus? And the answer really is pretty simple. It's because Barabbas is not Jesus. Jesus versus anyone, they were going to choose anyone. They, and and it, it reminds us that as we start thinking about the truth and our perspective of the truth, there is in our minds that, that moves from this is truth 
to this is my truth. This is my understanding of truth. This is my interpretation of truth. And often we become so focused, so single-minded on our perspective of truth that we do some crazy things. We become so single-minded about what we believe is truth that it leads us even to actions like the religious leaders that is completely contrary to truth. I was thinking about that, that idea this week and put it in a sort of a uh, I don't know, less serious context. When I, when I was growing up as a boy, I, I had three favorite sports teams. The Cincinnati Reds in baseball, the Ohio State Buckeyes in football, and the Indiana Hoosiers in basketball. And I know those are, that's a really eclectic group. I lived in Ohio for a while, Indiana, so you know these things. But what, what I've always thought was interesting, and it, it may tell you a lot about me, is that the, the, the face of those three programs were those three teams. For the Reds, my hero was Pete Rose. Ohio State was Woody Hayes. Indiana basketball was Bob Knight. Now, if you don't know much about sports and those people, Pete Rose has been banned from baseball and was in prison for a while because he gambled on games in which he was the manager. Woody Hayes was fired from his job because at the end of uh, one of the bowl games, one of the, a player on the other team intercepted a pass and cost him the game, and the guy happened to come to the sideline, and he punched him. Didn't end well for Woody. And Bob Knight has this reputation, you know, of being a chair-throwing bully, uh, vulgar language, and, you know, all of this stuff associated with the worst things you can think of about coaches. Now, what's interesting is that when you think about Indiana basketball, and you have to grow up in Indiana kind of to understand this, but you spend your, you spend, I spend our, we spend our lives defending Bob Knight. You know, you say things like, well, his players graduate. And that's a good thing. And he's raised millions of dollars for the library at Indiana University. Never got in trouble for cheating. Never had any scandals with the NCAA. And of course, it didn't hurt that his teams won. And I and and you know and he was part. Of, he was fired eventually for uh, a videotape of in a practice him choking one of his players. And I was talking to someone about that when that happened, and they said their grandmother, big IU fan, said to them, they were talking about it, and the grandmother said, well, if it's true that he choked that boy, the boy probably deserved it. <laughs> that in a nutshell is what, you, what the mindset that you have, you know, it's crazy. And, and you get so focused on this is our guy and this is our team, and, and it doesn't matter what the truth is. We're going to defend them. And it's nuts. And we make crazy decisions about things that make no sense. Because this is our focus. And we are so single-minded. We can't see the truth. And so you look back in history. And it's, it's almost incomprehensible for us that you read stories of captains reading the Bible on the deck of a slave ship. Or you think back to the, the civil rights movement and how the evangelical church rejected 
by and large, rejected Martin Luther King Jr. and that whole movement because there were things about their theology that, that the evangelical church didn't like. And so instead of being down in, in, in Alabama marching with them, we were nowhere to be found because we didn't want to be misinterpreted. And we couldn't see that it was so much bigger than that. Because we're so focused on our single-minded idea. One thing that we missed the big picture. G.I. Packer, great theologian, says that, talks about the, the unloveliness of sectarianism. That idea that, you know, it's just all about our group. And he talks about, you know, we, we tend to be elitist. We are the only group that really matters. Talk about uh, standoffish, where, you know, we, we are the only ones not only that matter, but we're the only ones that are right, and we don't associate with other people unless they agree with us 100%. We're very narrow. We only think, it, we only value what is in our past, and the people who agree with us, they're the only ones that have any value to us in history and in the present. And there is this sort of hidden arrogance with that that gets disguised as faithfulness, but actually is not faithfulness at all. It's we are it. We have figured it out. And we're right. And that single-mindedness makes us unwilling to see the bigger picture. That maybe, just maybe, we don't have the corner on the whole truth. Someone said to me recently as we were talking about this, they said, I wonder if maybe one of our problems with being closed-minded about thinking about the bigger things is that we don't really want to do the hard work of, of wrestling with the gray areas of life. And I think that's true. It's much simpler. It's much easier to just say, this is what we believe. We don't think about anything else. We just wear blinders and, and it's It's comfortable. And it's easy, and I don't really have to think. But the kingdom is about people who are willing to think. And to realize that their life is full of tensions. In fact, as I've said before, I've come to the conclusion that all of the things that are important that we believe, we have to understand them in tension. Of two things, two truths that are fully true, that somehow we live in the tension of them. God is sovereign. Humans have free will. Jesus is fully God. Jesus is fully human. And on and on we go that these truths have to be held in tension. But that's hard work. And it means that that we can't just make formulas and, and the formulas just settle everything for us. We have to use the minds that God has given us. And we have to pray and we have to search the scriptures. And we dialogue with each other and we work through these things. But that's what we do when we really want truth. Not just settling for our version of truth. Because I have discovered that my humanness gets in the way of really understanding the fullness of God's truth. And your humanness gets in the way of understanding the fullness of God's truth. And I'm not talking about the the core essentials of our faith because quite frankly, those are rarely the things that we get most upset about. 
You look at the, the diff, most of the churches that have difficulties and split through the years. It's usually not about deep theological things. It's about crazy things like the color of the carpet and what color you're going to paint the bathroom or things like that. It's about my version of things versus your version of things. And, and we get so focused, we don't see the big picture. And that's why we need the cross. Because you simply cannot view truth arrogantly when the cross enters the picture. The minute we begin to focus on the cross, we start focusing on who Christ is and what Christ has done and the way Christ teaches truth and models truth and lives out truth. And arrogance is never a part of it. Jesus says to Pilate, everyone who's interested in truth listens to me. And what do we hear Jesus saying? Surrender, sacrifice, submission, love. As the means of interpreting and understanding truth. And again, we're we're not weakening the truth of who Christ is and of who God is and what God has done, we are simply allowing for the fact that when it comes to understanding that, you and I make mistakes about how we interpret the truth of God. And the cross keeps us humble. And so what does it look like then to understand truth in the context of the cross? For one thing, if we understand truth in the context of the cross, we are unwilling to use people as pawns to promote truth. You get the feeling when you read this, the gospel accounts of what goes on in this story of Barabbas and Jesus, that the religious leaders have decided that they'll do anything to convict Jesus, including... Let the people be pawns in their play. And if the people have to suffer for it, if the people are going to be, or need to be used in order to get to the end, it's worth it because you're getting to the truth. And the end justifies the means. But in the kingdom of God, it just doesn't work that way. Truth that says it's okay to use people as pawns is not truth. Truth that says that it's okay to to manipulate people in order to get to the right end is not getting to the right end. The second part of that is that not only do we not use people as pawns to promote truth, we also are unwilling to put people in jeopardy in order to maintain truth. We won't put people at risk, especially innocent people, People who can't defend themselves, people who can't do anything about it, people who don't understand, we refuse to do that. Because the cross calls us not to put people in jeopardy, but to love them and to care for them. Not to use them or to manipulate them in order to get to the end truth that we desire. And you see this happening all the time in some of the social issues that we deal with. Whatever the social issue may be that you you feel is vitally important to what it means to be a follower of Christ. 
Pick things on the right, pick things on the left. People are just as passionate about all of them. And I have watched the church be so enamored with those social issues that we will use people and manipulate people to get to the end that we think is right. And we will put people in jeopardy and in harm's way to get to the end that we think is right because down in our minds, we are convinced that the end justifies the means. But where do we ever see that in the ministry of Jesus? What we see in Jesus is that his promotion of truth, maintaining truth, exhibiting truth, is not through manipulating people or hurting people, but it's through his willingness to be vulnerable to all people. It is the cross that defines truth. As I said last week, I just changed the formula a little bit. A commitment to truth plus mistreating people equals anything other than a commitment to truth. We don't understand truth if we aren't willing to be vulnerable so that people can see what truth really looks like. So they can, they can understand what truth is really about. Because truth is not just believing right things, as important as it is. It is believing right things that lead, uh, leads us to living the right way. And if our definition and our understanding of truth in any way leads us to manipulate people, or to use people, to hurt people who are in need, to hurt people who are innocent and vulnerable, then we've misunderstood truth. Now, granted, that doesn't mean everyone's going to agree with our positions about truth. It doesn't mean that when we take a stand for truth, that people are not going to like that. But in some ways, that's the point. Is that people may attack us because we stand for the truth. And then the issue is, what do we do about it? Is our response to attack back? Or is our response more like Jesus? Who realizes that the only way for people to really understand truth. And to understand that his truth is different than anything else anybody says. Is for him to go to the cross. I I keep coming back to what Paul writes to the Philippians. He says... Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Jesus, who had every right to the the authority of being God and everything that that means and displaying power to people and giving it back to people with full force, that same Jesus does not grasp that power, but instead humbles himself. And becomes obedient to death. Taking the very nature of a servant. He humbles himself and becomes obedient to death. Even death on a cross. And we're ever going to understand what it means to live in the truth. It will be in the context and in the spirit of the vulnerability and the sacrifice and the surrender 
of the cross. And that will mean that you and I have to admit that we don't always have the corner on the truth. It will mean that you and I make mistakes. It will mean that at some point there, is, there needs to be a sense of transparency about being God's people, about being the church. In his book, um, Unchristian, the subtitle is What a New Generation Really Thinks About the Church and Why It Matters. David Kenneman has a section where he talks about a friend of his who's a pastor in the Los Angeles area. And he got a real burden about, about people who, who see Christians and the church as arrogant. And, and he finally convinced the elders of the church to allow him to do a series of sermons that he called Confessions of a Sinful Church. And, and they made up postcards and they distributed them, thousands of them, all over the area college campuses. And on the postcards, he said, for the next five weeks, here's what we're going to do. We're, every week, we are going to apologize for something that the church has done, that the church shouldn't have done. And the first week was we, have, we, were, we apologize for our self-righteousness and hypocrisy. The second week was, we apologize for endorsing slavery. And the third week, we apologize for mistreating homosexuals. And the fourth week, we apologize for the medieval crusades. And the fifth week, we apologize for saying that the earth is flat. And he said the response was amazing. Person after person came to the church or sent him a note or wrote him a letter and said, we never knew people in the church would have that kind of attitude. It always seemed to us that the church thought they were perfect. It's kind of interesting to us to realize that people acknowledge that they're not. And we'd like to know more about that. And people began to open up their lives and their hearts because they saw a perspective of the church, not of arrogance as they might have suspected, but of humility and vulnerability and a spirit of a servant. I'm convinced that if If the world is ever going to hear the truth, it has to be in the context of the cross. Our message, what we're saying, what we're believing doesn't change. It's foundational. It's, it's, It's biblical. That's not the point. It's the spirit in which we say it. It's the, it's the humble attitude in which we live it. It's the willingness to acknowledge that sometimes, sometimes we don't always get it right. 
And we're willing to acknowledge that and apologize. And I'm convinced that is one of the ways in which the church will be used by God to change the world. So as you think about the truth in your life, how you're communicating that, how you're living that, the attitude and the spirit in your heart about the truth. Is there anything that God may be saying to you as an individual, to me as an individual, to us as a church, about how we are living out the truth in a world that desperately needs to hear it and see it. Heavenly Father, you know how we wrestle to to try to figure out believing right things and living right ways and how often we mess that up. Forgive us. Make us more and more and more committed to the truth of Christ. And make us more and more people who live and communicate that truth in the spirit of Christ. We pray this in his name and in his grace. Amen. stand and sing with us. I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way, the sin that promised joy in life, and led me to
you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.